Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Each week I'm joined by our experts, journalists, policymakers, academics, former diplomats, you name it, to talk about the critical events shaping our world today. And on this edition, we're going to be talking about the protests sweeping Iran, how they have galvanised a generation of women and the brutal response we are seeing from the regime. Meanwhile, this week at Chatham House, we've hosted our long-awaited Iraq conference, which I was really honoured and excited to be part of. And there was a keynote speech by Dr. Ali Alawi, Iraq's former Deputy Prime Minister. Colleagues from our Middle East and North Africa programme have organised it, and, and it took a really hard look at all the challenges facing Iraq nearly two decades on from the fall of Saddam Hussein. So much more on that in just a bit. Joining me this week, though, I've got a terrific panel. We're, we're all here in the studio, which doesn't always happen. I've got Dr. Sanam Vakil, the Deputy Director of our Middle East and North Africa programme. Hi, Sanam. Hi. Great to have you here. And also Dr. Renard Mansour, Senior Research Fellow for our Middle East and North Africa programme, who's been helping put together this conference uh, so well. Hi, good to have you here. Hello. He's the Project Director of our Iraq Initiative. And... Our guest this week is Sanya Burgess, a digital investigations journalist with Sky News. I was just quizzing her about what that means, and she's been following the Iran protests closely. Thanks for having me. Welcome. All right, well, let's let's start with Iran, as I said. And this has, uh, among all the other world news that has been boiling uh, for the past few weeks, months, this is one of those that has really not gone away and has left so many people wondering what this means for Iran, where it is going to go. Sanam, can you just take us into it and what this, what we should make of it? Thank you, Bronwyn. The Iran protests are in their ninth week and they were sparked by the killing of a young Kurdish-Iranian girl. Her name is Massa Jina Amini and she was murdered, killed by Iran's morality police for wearing poor hijab where, and women in Iran are required to cover their hair with a veil and dress modestly and have been required to do so since 1979. Her death sparked protests that have continued unabated for over two months now and brought out huge cross-sections across Iran. There have been protests in ethnic areas in Kurdistan and in Baluchistan. We've seen women, and particularly young women, be at the forefront of these protests, chanting for what seems to be the slogan of these protests, women, life, and freedom, removing their veils and being very brazen and pushing back against restrictive Islamic law. But Beyond women as well, bazaar merchants have protested, the middle class has come out on the streets, laborers have gone on strike. So the protests really showcase the depth of grievances across a repressive Iranian state that continues to crack down. And it also showcases that there are not many off-ramps available to address these very vast issues for an Islamic Republic that is under sanctions, that is facing decades of corruption and mismanagement, and continues to see repression as the only avenue to stay in power. Thank you so much. You've taken us right across this huge array of issues that this represents and the way that these have really spread. How much of this do you feel is about hijab, about women's issues, women's sense of wanting freedom? How much is it much wider? 
I think that because there's such a cross-section, these protests bring together a variety of issues. For women, this is about dignity and it's about rights and freedom. And they've been living in a very repressive state that has dictated how they should behave and dress for well over 40 years. So there are profound frustrations and anger there. And those are directed towards the state and to a patriarchal old leadership that refuses to reform and adapt. But beyond that, I think Iranians are really suffering from high inflation, economic mismanagement, corruption, leadership that really just continues to showcase that they refuse to adapt, care, or reform. And so you do have people coming out on the streets chanting death to the dictator, which is a really powerful message targeting the highest echelons of power in Iran. I'm reaching through this for the sense, as we all are, of why now? And on the hijab point, as you've um, uh, said eloquently, and it has gone, the enforcement of it has gone back and forth over the years. I can think of the times I've been in Iran, sometimes it's been very strict, and sometimes people have been, felt able to take a more relaxed thing. But the way you're, you're saying, it, a lot of things have come together. Where would you say that the, the sanctions on Iran have played into this and the the nuclear talks if you like there've been so much hope if you like raised of of uh, there could be an opening up there could be a lifting of sanctions and th- and then that not happening is this is that part of it as well I think certainly, as you rightly mentioned, there have been so many inflection points where people's hopes have been dashed and the promise of Iran being more integrated economically and politically into the international system with the Iran nuclear agreement has definitely played a role here. The economic pain that ordinary Iranians feel and face every day is strangling the economy and and making just access to daily provisions difficult. There were protests in Iran in 2019, economically driven protests that were crushed violently. There have been protests in 2017 that were also economic. So I think people just don't have a release valve. And the death of Masa Amini really resonated. It was perhaps Iran's George Floyd or Sarah Evergard moment. Everyone felt like their child or they themselves could have been Masa Amini. But it really speaks to something much more profound. Thank you. I'll come on in a moment to where all this might go and what the significance of it. But, Renata, I wondered if you could take us into how countries in the region are, are looking at this. Well, first of all, I think if you look at the people in the region, they relate. They can relate to an authoritarian regimes where most people in the region feel like they don't have a voice over the political process. And the political elite in all the countries in the region are making decisions on the daily lives of, of people in an authoritative way. So there is a sense that they can relate. And we've seen protest as one of the only channels for people to feel like they have a voice, to, to get out some of the stress, as, as Sanam is saying, whether that was during the Arab uprisings in Egypt, North Africa, Yemen, Syria, or more recently with the revolutions, you know, the protest in Iraq and Lebanon. People in the region don't have democratic institutions. They don't have a voice other than through protest. So they are sympathetic. Then there's another part to this, which is certain countries have fallen under Iranian influence in in, in the last few decades. For example, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. And so Iraqis, for example, are saying, we've been protesting against Iran for several years now. Uh, A few consulates, Iranian consulates, have been burned down in the south of Iraq in protest against this regime. So there's also that element to it, that some people who are under sort of Iran's foreign policy want have that sympathy as well and 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 finally of course on the other end of that there are regimes and groups that benefit from iran that are a bit more worried about 
Iran being on the brink of something. And so they're doubling down and hoping to support somehow maintaining the regime. So you have different reactions across the region. Different reactions. And should we assume that news of these protests in Iran has really gone widely across the region, that people can see all this? Yes. And I think this is important. We are living in an age where technology, everyone has a smartphone, people are on Facebook or Twitter and all of that, which is allowing the news to, to, to be shared, which is allowing us to go and understand what people are saying on Clubhouse or any type of social media platform. We are learning that people are aware and they're also sympathetic. You know, I don't want to get into the conference too early, but we had some Iraqis here. We're coming, uh, we're coming to the conference, and, and, yeah. And, and, yeah, but so we, they were in London yeah. and they saw the Iranian yeah. protest and they're like, we yeah. should join. We should all just join, the, you know, the, these protests in London that were against the Iranian regime. So definitely people are sympathetic and, and, and hope for, you know, they understand they can, they can un- sort of relate to what Iranians are going through today. Really, really interesting. We'll pick up some of those points. But Sanya, let me bring you on precisely this this, this point, because you and your, your colleagues look very much at the digital expression of this. Tell me a bit about what you've been doing. Yeah, well, so the Iranian protests have been very hard to cover in a traditional aspect. It's very hard to get foreign reporters on the ground in Iran and those reporters who are there already are basically bullied and intimidated out of reporting on the protests themselves. So my team, which is the Sky News Data and Forensics team, we basically, at least on the forensic side, essentially conduct what we call digital investigations and that's using online tools to look into online spaces. Now, you know, we've talked about how social media has played a role in the Iranian protests, but it's not something that we can take for granted We're recording this just as as the anniversary of Bloody November, which saw a basically near total internet blackout carried out by the Iranian regime. That's fresh on people's minds while they've been trying to sort of deal with the sporadic and slightly less comprehensive internet blackouts this time round. And it's fresh on their mind that if they lose that access to the internet, they can't get out the small snippets that we're seeing. So, for example, one so of the... So when you say the small snippets that you're seeing, I mean, people are getting out on, on social media and things, small snippets, and, and, and that's what you're picking up. Yes, absolutely. And how do, you, how do you verify them? So there's two things at play here. Usually when there is some sort of civil unrest, be it a civil war or a war zone or protests, you get long clips. Often they're live streamed, which gives you a timestamp. You get a variety of things that you can check out. This stuff runs for 40, 50 minutes. What we see in the Iranian protests is we're getting very short snippets. A two-minute clip and my team start high-fiving. Yes, we've got loads to work with. Now, that's partly because basically the people who are within Iran are trying to make sure that they can send these clips as easily as possible to Iranian diaspora and people who are sympathetic to their cause. Within that, before they send it, they use apps on their phone to help blur identities because it is so dangerous to be seen releasing this kind of information. That's obviously incredibly important, but makes my job very difficult in terms of verification. So we obviously have huge parts of the screen blurred out, not very much to work with in terms of length. And in Iran, they have really not embraced the idea of Google Street View, which is very important for what we call geolocation. And that's how we independently verify where something takes place. That can be everything from one that I was working on the other day, a protest in the Kurdish city of Bana. There was an unusual looking building, that, but there was nothing else. And it was only about a 15 second long clip. Through sheer luck almost, I was able to work out that was a hotel. Search hotels in that area of Bana. 
find the hotel on Google Maps and therefore I knew exactly where that protest was happening and so that that clip really was from that area and you can also see things like where the sun is in the sky so you can use shadows to give you a rough time sounds very magic but there's apps that work it out for you really really (laughs) interesting and as we saw with the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov over people pinning him down apparently on his hospital balcony balcony, (laughs) this thing is incredibly useful Let's take us then into the, the question, Sanam, of where this might go. What, does, what could this mean for the regime? This is a very tricky one. This uh, is what you have been yes. talking and writing about for a couple of months now all over the world's media. You know, it, I mean, I approach this with a lot of caution and humility because we're only two months in and past Iranian protests have gone on for much longer. In 2009, during the Green Movement protests against uh, protesting the outcome of the p- political election, those protests went on for you know almost 10 months, waxing and waning, despite serious government repression and arrests and, and, and all of that. And in 2017 and 2018, again, those protests dragged on. So I very much expect, despite what I would call a government playbook that has seen internet slowdowns and arrests. 15,000 people have been arrested. Number five people now have been sentenced to death. Um, They have also uh, tried to externalize the crisis and and blame the West and blame regional states for stoking and provoking these protests. I think the protests will continue. This is an inflection moment. You know, a striking shift here is that we're seeing Gen Z on the streets, young people who have grown up in Iran and know nothing but Iran and are really expressing a new wave of politicization and frustration that we haven't witnessed before. And, And they're being very brazen. And the state, despite their repressive tendencies and capacity and monopoly of force, are actually this time compared to bloody November in 2019, um, perhaps showing divisions about gunning them down and killing them because they are quite young and they are young girls. And and this is provoking perhaps a debate within the system. So I expect that these will continue. But, you know, this is a, a movement that doesn't have organization. It's quite spontaneous. The protests are rather small and sporadic, and, and that they're also lacking. I guess that has a strength and a weakness. Exactly. A strength in that it's very hard to take out the leaders for the exactly. regime, but a weakness in that it can. Exactly. I was just going there. Yeah. Without a leader, though, mm. this is a strength for now. But over time, leadership does need to develop, and it doesn't seem to be emerging from within the system, from within the political elite, because reformists and moderates are on on the outs and and have been arrested actually mm. as well. So it remains to be seen if that will coalesce and if the regime will continue to crack down they have the monopoly of force they have a monopoly of wealth and Iran is 85 million people strong Uh, I I don't think we have hit numbers that are destabilizing yet for the Islamic Republic Mm. so we have thank you you've answered more than I than (laughs) than I thought (laughs) I could reasonably ask you about where this might go obviously the big question that no one really really can answer on this Renan as you were saying lots of countries particularly in the region, are watching this, they're not all neutral. Some would like a regime change. What are you getting a sense of? 
Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So you have both sides. I mean, Iran has been probably one of the most powerful external players in, in the region. So certain countries, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, have close relations with the Iranian government. Other countries in the Gulf have had antagonistic relations and are worried about, you know, Iran, its nuclear program and, and, and those issues that we've and seen. And there's, of so, course, Israel. And there's Israel, who has, has for, for many years been trying to encourage a more hawkish policy towards Iran in any case. But then there are the people. And this is what I think is, is, is important, that, as I mentioned, people in Lebanon, people in Syria, people in Iraq have been living under similar conditions as the, the Iranians have been in terms of authoritative regimes. But those regimes are being backed by Iran. And so, you know, this is why in Iraq many years ago, one of the main slogans of their protests was Iran out out. They want Iran out of their country. And so there are people who have been for years wanting Iran out. And so they're looking at this and saying, is this a moment? But they also have experience, right? Exactly as Hanam says, these countries have also tried their forms of protest. And they know that unorganized protests don't lead anywhere. You know, mobilization is, is, is great. But without a leadership, without a structure, it's hard to see what this is, which is revolution, right? This is not incremental reform. People are, call people are calling for the downfall of a regime, which is huge. It happened in Iran in 79 after you know many years of, of, of protests so they also know that most likely based on their own experiences the regime won't fall mm. Mm. And that's the way this conversation is going Sonia what are the kind of things that you will look for well I just wanted to pick up quickly on the Generation Z point for me that has been a monumental theme during my coverage of it both in terms of when I've spoken to people who've bravely opted to speak to me while in the country and both people who outside of the country with family at home to them it's clear that this generation gen z whose grandparents perhaps were in the 1979 revolutions and protests they've had enough they have seen generation after generation of women and men and their brothers sisters etc fight and they do not want to have change not happen in their lifetime. To them, it's just not an option. And this generation have also been born with digital in their blood. It's not something that, you know, we're talking about there's a lack of organisation, and I completely agree with that. But things operate differently in a way with the young. It, the, oper the leadership almost is that mass voice online. The fact that without an organisation, they've kind of decided, OK, this is how we're going to put the clips out. This is, we're going to blur them. We're going to make Instagram accounts just full of this information to get it into the in front of people whose voices and amplification can really help so for example it was interesting to me that french president macron said when you look on the ground it's beginning to look like a revolution to me within a couple of days of looking at the kind of thing that was coming out it was a digital revolution and we can pretend that that's only half our lives but we live online just as much as in the real world and just to chuck some figures at you the hashtag Masa Amini in the first month had been tweeted more than 370 million times in English and Persian. That is absurd. <laughs> it, it just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. In one day alone on the 23rd of September, it was tweeted 30 million times alone. And Iran cannot control this. There's a cliche going around in a lot of coverage, which is this is the video Iran doesn't want you to see. But it's a cliche for a reason, because they're really trying to stop that. And while I think a, a leader will have to arrive at some point, it's this it's almost this community spirit born within the Gen Z generation. Yeah. It's a very young country. People are used to using social media. They've only had access really to Instagram and WhatsApp. And now the Iranian government are targeting those apps as well, in particular. 
The cat and mouse game digitally between the Iranian forces and the protesters has never been so sophisticated. I th- I'm glad you brought up the issue of uh, of the youth. And, and, you know, what's interesting about the Iranian case is that Iran's population doubled much earlier than many countries in the region. Uh, the revolution sort of spawned a, a massive demographic growth. So for many years, the Iranian population was the youngest of the region. But what's important to note is that that population is now aging and the majority of the Iranian population is now 35 to 50. And, and that's actually an interesting demographic. Graphic. It really is, and we, we could almost do a whole program just on how Iran deliberately brought that about by birth control and things after the revolution, of absolutely fascinating example of population change. And the, the clerics saying, actually, we, we think a, a slower, a smaller family size actually might be good for the country. It is one of the, the world's most interesting yes. studies on that, but that is not quite this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, and I, Sana, I was go- I was going to say, could you in a way bring this together for us because on one hand we've had this this this, uh, this passionate account from, from, from uh, description from Sanya of of what of how people are using mm. the new media of how the young people are expressing themselves and you, you've echoed that on the other hand the caution that both you and, and Renard have said about where this is going and it doesn't have leaders and so on what are the things that you will look for to tell us which of these two kind of visions of the future we're heading towards I think while I'm very I'm very inspired by the braveness of of the young people particular out on the streets I think that there is consensus on what people don't want what concerns me is we don't have a consensus on where we're going and what people want. And for a system as deeply institutionalized as the Islamic Republic that is 43 years old, um, there needs to be organization. And eventually leadership does need to develop. And that requires... If it is going to become a If it's going to become a revolution. And, you know, the Islamic Republic was born out of two decades of struggle, not two years of struggle or two months of struggle. So I would be looking for greater bonds among all of the different cleavages inside the country, more strikes, more coordinated downs of the economy. I will be looking for the money. Money has to pour in to support people being able to survive and strike and not going to work. And more coordinated, organized statements, including support from reformists inside the country and break breakdown of sort of law and order perhaps even the security services joining the protests. So if we want to get there, there needs to be that coordination and organization beyond what we're seeing today. It's really important to remind us that revolutions have long roots and things take a long time to bring about change. On which note, we are going to pivot and talk about Iraq and what has been happening for almost 20 years there. And Renard, this was such an exciting conference that Chatham House put on. I'm going to give an unashamed promo for it because this is, uh, I think, our biggest gathering of people since the pandemic. And I was chairing part of it, the, the keynote with Dr. Ali Alawi, the former Deputy Prime Minister, and just to see this hall packed with people and hands shooting up before sentences had been finished was very exciting. People wanted to talk about this big range of subjects, which included gender and so on, but had at the heart what is happening in Iraq, what has gone wrong, where is it going to go from here? What were your big thoughts coming away from it? I think the idea was to discuss some of the lessons learned from the experience of Iraq. We're getting on to the 20-year mark of of the U.S.-led invasion, and it's probably one of the biggest in our lifetimes point of international state building, of of going into a country and fundamentally changing, changing it. And 
a lot has gone wrong and and there are lessons to to be learned partly sort of George W Bush president bush declared mission accomplished 6 weeks after the invasion in May 2003 and here we are in 2022 talking about the same issues the same violence conflict structural issues of corruption so i think our main takeaways from it and based on someone like the deputy prime minister i think his profile is very interesting because he's someone who grew up abroad born in baghdad but left grew up abroad world bank Harvard his CV is 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 extensive he goes back to Iraq with this idea that i know how states work i know how bureaucracies work but of course the system there is different it's very distinct it has its own ways of of operating and so it's really i think a humbling lesson of of trying to go abroad and trying to just build the government and build a ministry where power isn't even in that ministry. And there's a really important point that this wasn't just an American idea of what change could come to Iraq. It was also one shared by Iraqis or be those outside the country. Let's just listen for a second to what Dr. Ali Alawi had to say. Uh, he it was quite a bleak picture uh, beginning with well what went wrong everything went wrong. What went wrong after 2003 because nearly everything went wrong. We had failures at every level, at the level of, uh, at the highest level, at the level of forming the political framework for a post-dictatorship country, to the kind of governments that were installed, to the, uh, undoubtedly, in the first few years, there was a huge security challenge too, which we mustn't overlook. The country was under a very serious attack between 2005 and 2007-2008. We were, I think, singularly badly served by the political class that emerged after 2003. And that went on. There was a period of perhaps a few years of relative feud, which some people look at as a, a time of uh, economic well-being only to fall into the 2014 nightmare of this mad terrorist army of Daesh. A lot of people, nearly a million people left Iraq after 2003. Not all of them were, were involved in the more outrageous aspects of the old regime. But it was denuded of its talent. The bureaucracy as a... As a a vertical organization, as a hierarchical organization, was severely shaken. And people who were not competent, who were not capable, who were not even up to international standards of 30 years ago, were either left or were put into positions of power and influence. So the vertical structures that holds every bureaucracy, every government machinery, and that sometimes saves the state when you have those who are incompetent, when you have ministers and governments that are corrupt. The bureaucracy has a certain integrity to it that allows it to function. This weakening allowed another force to come in, which is the horizontal intrusion into the bureaucratic structures, not only by politicians, but by politicians, by warlords, by tribal chiefs, by corrupt businessmen, by all kinds of people. So you have people in, in positions of great authority and decision-making, unable to manage the system, 
hierarchically because they have lost that capacity and are prone to being subverted by these forces that keep them in their position. So you bring ministers and you put them on top of that. It really serves no function unless the minister does everything. The persons who are put in charge of very important and significant government departments must have the capacity to plan, to have a vision, to manage a bureaucracy and to solve problems on a daily basis, which is not their function. It's a function of the bureaucracy. So that to me is the single most glaring factor behind the inability of Iraq to come out of its problems, is that the state is incapable of providing the necessary machinery of administration and government to allow it to do so. He made a, a passionate defense of the bureaucracy, mm-hmm. if you like. That was something I, as I said to him, I hadn't, ex- hadn't seen coming, but was almost moving to hear. And he was arguing for the case of, of good bureaucracy when it, when it works. And one of the things that had been lost in Iraq, he said, was the ability of the state to function. He wasn't talking just after the American invasion, but very recently he said, what you haven't got in Iraq is, is that functioning state. Is that a picture you recognize? Yes, that's the political solution. So every few years, there's a massive conflict in Iraq, civil war or ISIS, or something happens and there's a military solution to it. They're removed. But there has yet to be that political solution. And what that political solution is, is a functioning bureaucracy. In 2003, one of the main decisions that the coalition, for, coalition made was to remove the top four layers of the entire civil service. So these are the people who actually knew how to turn on the lights in each one of the ministries. So that led to looting, but it also led to nobody being able or knowing how things worked. So, and, and we're talking about Iran today, but there's an interesting comparative here. In 79, with the revolution, the state was largely left intact. They came at top and changed the regime. It was regime change. Although Iraq was said to be regime change, what it actually was was the destruction of that state. The civil service, anyone tied to the Ba'ath party, which you had to be, was removed. And in place were political appointees who, because the elite had no constituency, they all lived abroad, they needed to build constituency. So what they did is they employed people. So people were employed for political favor and patronage networks were built. And that system of corruption that Allah is talking about as it developed over the last 20 years, that was when it was born. Let's just go into that point for a second because it is so crucial how corruption develops in a way. One of the things that this conference really brought out was that money, a shortage of money, has not been the problem mm-hmm. in Iraq. A budget of, I think, $100 billion yeah. a year. Money, you know, available. Um, but would you say that the availability of that money actually made the corruption problem worse? It, it constructed these networks? To a large extent, it's classic rentier, sort of rentierism in that there is a big pot of money. The elite need power. They've come to the country after years of exile and so they need the money to build their power and that's what happened and and they you know the greed eventually became the political system so politics in that is a marvelous phrase <laughs> <laughs> but politics is corruption in Iraq. You, there's no other pl- way to play it. And someone like the deputy prime minister realized that that you can either go in 
But there's no way a reformist could actually play any other game. And every time we have stories of someone trying to come into reform, but there's just too much money and too many vested interests for any one reformist to change. And and yeah, you're right. The budget is 100 billion, but also hundreds of billions have been spent by the Europeans, the US, the UN on development in Iraq. So there, you know, the, the money is, is is crazy. Just recently, there was one bank heist, and they're calling it the heist of the century because 2.5 billion dollars was taken from an Iraqi state bank while Ali Alawi was was prime minister was finance minister but of course he you know he was far away from it as finance minister you're one of the not you're not a powerful person in the country neither is the prime minister it's just the way it works but that's the money we're talking about we're talking about hundreds of billions when we talk about Iraq so what's your perspective on this i think the iraqi model is one that is looking at not just in the case of Iraq, which from an external sort of observer, or I think regional states sometimes look at Iraq and they see Iraq for all its dysfunction. But I think from an Iranian perspective, they look and they see multiple government transitions, yes, admit violence, but a state that is, is learning or trying to find its way of functioning. So that's like the glass half full version of Iraq. The glass half empty, I think, applying it to the context of Iran is... In the, in the moment of these protests, many Iranians inside Iran and in the diaspora are looking at 2003, the removal of Saddam Hussein, and thinking, how is it that we're going to unseat the Islamic Republic and, and the people that have led Iran for over four decades? And they think the role of external players is very important. And since Renad... I think very appropriately brought up debathification. In in creating a new state, it's really important not to decapitate the institutions that have played a hugely important role. And Western governments tend to see the IRGC, for example, in Iran, which could be like Iran's bath party, as one that needs to be decapitated. But if everyone has this is been the revolutionary the guards. revolutionary yep. guards, if they have all been part of the state, you can't remove the entire state in order to build a new structure. So so much thinking needs to be done unless lessons from Iraq's post-2003 should be applied to other parts of the Middle East, if not other parts of the world, to, to learn how to do this better. In a way, other parts of the world, and I think, and I was thinking of, 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 of um, the American mistake, as I would put it, of, of going at first after al-Qaeda, but then after the Taliban in Afghanistan, not, not ex- understanding how that was actually a huge part of the society. Not quite structural in the same way. I was really interested, Renard, in the way you, you talk about the, almost the creation of this 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 corruption. We could have, again, a whole podcast and, and, and papers on what corruption is, but I think we know what you're talking about when everything comes with a connection, a personal connection, because you have taken away those structures. Sanya, I wanted to bring you, you in. At this point, you and your colleagues have been looking at uh, what's happening around the borders of Iraq. Yeah, a, a, a lot of the crackdown regarding the protests has happened in the Kurdish region, which obviously shares a border with the Iraqi Kurdish region. And what's fascinating about it is two things. One, we're seeing people who are, as you were discussing earlier, really sympathetic to the Iranian Kurdish cause and so are helping amplify those messages, both digitally, but also that we've seen across news media, actually a lot of sort of phone or video interviews happening with people who are on the Iraqi side of the border, but speaking on behalf of those across the way who aren't able to get their voice out. And I think that whole area the significance of it can't be undermined because of the fact that, as as we alluded to earlier, Masa Amini was Kurdish-Iranian and she, her actual name is Gina, which I believe means life, which is part of the slogan that has been going around and part of the chant. And so the, 
the importance of that relationship of the Kurdistan region can't be undermined. Renard, what were the more positive things, if I can put it that way, coming out of this conference? Because we did have this bleak vision, not just from Dr. Alawi, but others. But that was looking backwards. There were people looking forwards as well and saying, look, something, but as Sanam was saying, something is emerging out of that. Can you take the glass half full approach? Sure. I mean, part of the conference was also bringing in different types of people in the Iraqi state or, or civil society who live in Iraq. And they have no other choice. And as much as someone like Ali Alawi or others can give the black, you know, the bleak picture, they need to keep trying things. So you have massive tech industry, a tech sector, startups, civil society, protesters who are saying, we will keep trying. And they're looking for some connectivities. Is there a reformist? Is there a member of parliament who they can be connected to? Is there someone in the prime minister's office who they can be connected to? Strengthening these connective tissues between reformists, whether it's in the state or out of the state, is important. And, and, and at the end of the day, they haven't given up. Yes, there are some Iraqis who, who want to leave the country, but there are also more that we learned in the conference that are there to stay. And even though it's been 20 years of, 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 of conflict and, and, and post-conflict and conflict and post-conflict these cycles, they're still trying and, and hoping for a better future. What does it tell us about the ability of, of countries to help other countries in setting up specifically this kind of democratic government, attempted dem democratic government that respects minorities as well as majorities, because this is one of the big things that people have looked at in Iraq mm -hmm. and accused Americans of naivety or whatever, but, you know, we are 20 years on. What does it look like now? I think what we've learned from Iraq is the idea after 2003 was you have these different minorities, you have these different minoritized communities. How can we bring Sunni Shia Kurd together? How can we bring Christians and all Armenians and all of these different parts of the country, this mosaic, together? But what was missed in that was the class, you know, the elite versus citizens. And, and I think that continues to be missed in some circles, but needs to be highlighted. That, that looking, and the Lebanon model really shows this as well, but looking at politics on identity lines misses that most of the people whether they're Sunni Shia don't want their elite because of the corruption. So even one of the keys in the Iranian example is the Iranian regime would want to turn this into a Kurdish versus uh, Persian because that allows them to have some ideological power when they're only using repression. In the Iraqi case, I think what we've learned is while, yes, it's good to have different communities represented, are they actually representing the people they claim to be? And that question is harder, but needs to be part of any agenda for any international state builder going abroad to build democratic institutions. Renard, thank you. I'll take that as a bit of optimism towards the end. At this point, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, we are going to have this new feature of a member's question. And these are proving fascinating as they're coming in. Do keep sending them in if you're a member and do join if you're not a member. And the question this week is from Austin Short, and it is, we've seen a lot of focus on the Russian use of Shahid drone attacks on infrastructure targets. So how important is Iran in Russia's war effort in Ukraine? That is a hugely important development 
because from a regional perspective, Russia, Russia's use of Iranian drones or Iran's export of its drones to the war has highlighted Iran's malign influence in the region, its proliferation of lethal aid beyond its borders. And, and there are many states that are thrilled to finally see the international compu- community pay, play, paying attention for this. From the Iranian side, though, I think it showcases a darker shift in Iran's foreign policy. It, it suggests that it's unwilling to perhaps transform on a broader level. Its engagement with the West might be coming to an end, and it's doubling down in its relationships with Russia and China and and choosing to align itself against Western values, against Western politics. And, And that foreshadows perhaps a broader conflict on the horizon. Okay. Well, thank you for that last answer. And that will take us, I think, into future conversations as well. But with that, that that is the show. So a big thank you to Sanya, to Sanam, to Renard. And you can follow all our speakers on Twitter and you can follow the work of our MINAP program on our website, chathamhouse.org. Do be sure to check out Sanya's um, uh, journalism on Sky News as well. And you can find all the uh, videos from our Iraq conference there as well. You can find all our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or major podcast platforms, as well as on our social media channels. Do like us, follow us. Please do leave us a review. I am going to ask pretty well every time. It does help us. The review says, I should say. And for all our work or to become a member, don't forget to, again, come back to chathamhouse.org. On this week, we've also, I should mention, published work on transatlantic cooperation, the G20, and COP27, just coming to an end. Well, I will see you probably still on a more or less optimistic note next week. But I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you.